This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me today is Lynn English, who's a professor in the School of Curriculum at Queensland University of Technology over in Brisbane, Australia. Lynn, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Sam. It's lovely being in the Kenya country. We are going to be talking about Lynn's career in mathematics education, so I want to go back to the beginning. What was it, Lynn, that inspired you, or where was your first entry into the field of mathematics education? Oh, well, I've always loved mathematics, and I was a teacher of mathematics in the primary school and wrote maths curriculum materials for students who were on distance education out west. And then I wanted to pursue further studies, so I did my master's degree, which had 12 coursework subjects and a big thesis. And Graeme Jones, who was at Illinois State University and supervised a number of students, someone on your faculty here, mm-hmm. um, he encouraged me and I really enjoyed the study and then I moved on and did my um, doctorate at the University of Queensland, University University of Queensland. Did that part-time while I was still teaching as a university person and that's, yeah, and so my my topic area was combinatorial studies of young children where I looked at children from ages four, three to four preschool right up to ages of eight did my study in-depth study on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So was it a hard transition going from teaching to the more academic field or did no, it feel like a natural kind of progression? It was natural because I did, um, when I went through many, many decades ago, they um, they didn't, the Bachelor of Education was just introduced. I had a, a diploma and so I was studying part-time. But no, I loved the study and um, and then moving to the Masters and the Doctorate and, and no, it, it wasn't really a hard transition. It was just bit hard getting the study done as well as teaching full-time. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah so it yeah, so that overlapped was, there for a while. Yes. We um, find that hard with our students, and we we kind of don't allow them to do that here. We force them to go full-time. They're lucky to do it full-time. Well, that would just be the <laughs> ideal to go full-time. That would just be heaven. But, um, yeah, I did mine yeah, part-time. And, uh, and that was in both cognitive psychology and mathematics education. So I was very much interested, and I still am, but cognitive psychology, cognition was a very strong part of my area as well as mm-hmm. statistics. Yeah. Well, sorry, it's combinatorics, yeah. Right. What are some of the most potent memories from your doctoral studies experience? Oh, <laughs> dear. Um, I suppose frustrations at times with uh, supervision, I suppose, but I won't go into that. Um, <laughs> I suppose fitting everything in because I had to do it at night time after I'd finished teaching mm-hmm. and that. And we didn't have, like, we had the computers and that. We didn't have some of the facilities we have today. I, I did go out to schools and videotaping. I had somebody who helped me with the videotaping, which is good. But apart from that, except when I was close to submitting my, my um, thesis and my supervisor said to me, I don't know why you've got, I think, chapter five in there, Lynn. I thought, oh, geez, I'm about to. And anyway, I explained to him, he said, yeah, well, I'll just adjust a few things and he could see it in there. But um, <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. But anyway, I got it in there and it was examined and through, yeah. All right. Into the 1990s, you had a piece that was in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. And this yeah. has been a very highly cited piece. So I wanted to just get a little bit of your memories of that piece. So this one was about students' formal and, and informal, informal problem well, that, posing. Yes, I suppose all of this and my trajectory, I suppose you can use that term, 
of Korea has stemmed from my great belief in what students can do, what children can do, and also I wasn't, I was always interested in problem solving, but creative problem solving and letting students solve problems that were challenging that I knew they could solve. They might not exactly solve them the way that we'd expect them to solve, but mm. I was very much into open-ended type of problems and where we could really let the students be creative and be flexible thinkers, creative thinkers. And I felt at the time, because in the 1990s that I've moved away from the sort of problem posing, I've sort of done a lot on problem posing even more recently, but the problem posing that I looked at in the 90s was working with, say, you know, your number sentence and so on, because that was very much the flavour at the time. And I used to get a bit frustrated because students were just solving problems in a routine procedural fashion without the opportunity to be more creative and flexible in their thinking. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see how they would solve some of these problems when they're in more informal contexts versus formal, traditional way. Mm -hmm. And um, from that notion of wanting to see and encourage students to be creative and flexible in their problem solving, that has sort of driven me throughout my whole mm. career. And I've proved time and time again what students can do when you give them problems mm -hmm. that enables them to be flexible. Yeah. And I think, of, as I mentioned in my talk today, what I've always been trying to do in referring to um, an article, recent article I read, was that having low entry points, allowing and high ceilings so that you've got different levels of, I'll use the term, sophistication in the way mm -hmm. in which students can respond. And so with each mm -hmm. of the, as I've progressed throughout, I've been looking at problems that do allow for flexibility in thinking, creative problem solving, while at the same time still targeting your disciplinary content. Right. And I think one of the reasons that Jeremy piece from 1998 is so cited is because you did find rich examples of how creative the students could be yes, if they were yes. given problems in informal settings, yes, yes. where the formal contexts seem to really limit them. They that's felt like, I have, to, I have to solve this in a certain kind of prescribed that's way. Right, that's right, um, yes. And so to see the power of students having that creativity and having that expansive approaches. That's right, exactly. We increasingly need that, and that's what employers are calling for. You know, they, they're not necessarily interested in the straight, hardcore mathematics and, and routine procedures and so on. They want those who can think outside the box and can be flexible problem solvers and look for novel and new ways um, to solve problems. And often I've found over the years that the students that teachers, whom teachers say, look, I don't know whether this particular group of students or student would be able to solve that problem. They're not, you know, they don't achieve terribly highly on the regular maths program. And the teachers are amazed mm -hmm. when these students solve the problems that enable them to enter at different levels and solve the problems that are appealing to them and, and mm -hmm. some of the often the, the problems that I will I, I looked at deductive reasoning for a number of years and you ask the students is this mathematics oh no no it's not mathematics mm. because it's not the proceduralized problem solving it's a use of mathematics in a real world context or um, that enables them to solve appealing problems yeah so in one of our courses right here at Mizzou, um, we've been reading some of the CGI work from Carpenter and colleagues. Yes, yes, yes. And it's reminded me of a little bit of your work that you're talking about now, because they also found kindergartners who, if you just give them a problem in a context, 
they can solve mathematics problems that we would have thought were third grade problems That's or fourth right. grade yes, problems. Yes. But the kindergartners can do it if you just get out of their way. That's right, exactly. Let, let, them, them, let them solve them from absolutely. Yeah. And I've found that time and again. Yeah. But, um, and they can do that until they learn from schooling that they're yes. supposed to do it in a certain, certain way, way. And yes, now that yes. actually kind of well, that's that's a worry. I mean, um, you know, you've got to strike a, a balance, of course. But we tend to close. Well, I shouldn't say but we tend to close their minds at times if we mm-hmm. don't expose them to mm-hmm. problems that enable that challenge them, challenge mm-hmm. their thinking. Yeah. Know. So you mentioned that you've moved your thinking on a little bit since the 90s. I yes. want you to just say a little bit more about how you differ now from when you look at yourself back well, in the 90s. Well, one another um, milestone was meeting Dick Lesh <laughs> and many decades ago and I'm very, very fond of Dick and his wife Jill and Dick was such a forward-looking thinker. He really is often quoted with his model listening activities, modelling problems and he got me into it. They were just wonderful problems because of the different relevant contacts you could take, tying it in with the curriculum type, for example, um, if students are looking at um, history or social science the um, in Australia, the landing of the first fleet and so on, um, if they're studying that in their, in their uh, social science or social studies curriculum, we do modelling problems on that. So that means that it's fitting in with their study in, in other disciplines. They don't see it as an add-on, but they see it as an application of, of mathematics to solving a real-world problem. So I love the modelling problems of the declaration, and I still do them. To, I still create my own today on the model, form of model listening. Yeah, so, so that was a real milestone, meeting Dick Lesh, working with him, attending modelling, the, the um, ICMA, the International conference on the teaching of modeling and application i think it's called i haven't been there for a, a while and that got me into modeling which is mm-hmm. interpreted in a, a wide range of things and then i what got me into engineering education which i see as a link across the stem disciplines was that i attended um one of the conferences with dick and he was working start to work with engineering students and bringing in engineering and engineering contexts and concepts into the modeling Mm-hmm. And I could see how rich that area was. And so I started looking at engineering education, working in with my colleagues at Purdue. And I could see the design processes linked very nicely to your mathematical problem solving in modelling. Then I've just gone into engineering education, but mm-hmm. not losing the maths and science, seeing that as linking maths and science mm-hmm education but yeah I would say Dick Lesh and his work has been Mm -hmm. very instrumental in Mm -hmm. my direction. And it still has students working on problems with low floors and high ceilings and they still have a chance to be creative about how we're going to model and being critical about how we're going to refine That's right and the important thing is the critical analysis and justifying and explaining how you've got your models and there'll be different uh, levels of sophistication in the models but this as I mentioned today this sharing which is one of Dick Lesh's um, uh, task constructions shareability and um, reusability is that you your models you can share it with others they can use it they can critique it they can highlight aspects that you might not have thought about so you can run with those ideas and refine your model mm-hmm. a shareability is of your model is being able to apply it to related situations mm-hmm. and modifying it 
if necessary. And also students remember what they've learned mm -hmm. and what they've achieved because they associate with the context. So they remember, mm -hmm. oh yes, we looked at oh, no, making licorice or we, we looked at um, yeah, the Commonwealth Games and we found that you know, Australia did better than whatever. <laughs> and so it's the context makes them recall the mathematics and the model that they developed. And mm -hmm. I do see learning. I see a lot of the transfer of learning from one activity to another. Even the engineering, they, like in third year, I had the seri uh, some classes of going across a three-year longitudinal study. And when they were in sixth grade, I heard the students saying, oh, you remember in our very first year how we did that about the planes or whatever, and we looked at the planes. I think I can apply some of those ideas to this. It might be an earthquake exploring earthquakes. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so that was interesting. They were referring back to what they learnt in the first year of the program and applying in the third year. Wow, that's exciting to see. It was, yeah. it, it was really good to see, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so I taught them something <laughs> and they learned something, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was good, yeah. I'm speaking with Lynn English from Queensland University of Technology. Um, she's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. And we're going to speak more about your work on STEM education, but before that, I want to ask you about something where a lot of people might know you, which is from the journal Mathematical Thinking and Learning. Yes. You were the founding editor of that journal, still the editor. Were you the editor all the way along from founding to now? Yes, or? yes. Okay. And I sort of w worried about that a bit, but then a few years ago I asked colleagues and associators and they said, no, keep doing it. <laughs> got, you've got a system that works? Um. Yes, yeah, well, I hope so. I've got, um, I started the journal really with, Lawrence Erlbaum, it, um, Lawrence Erlbaum Associates. Mm -hmm. He was wonderful. They um, got a lot of reviews for it. And I mean, so I'm going back to 1997 where there weren't the number of journals there are today. Mm -hmm. And Laurie Erlbaum, LEA, were wonderful to work with. And then when he retired, um, Taylor and Francis Rutledge took it over and they've been wonderful. I've worked with a, a superb editorial editor there at Taylor and France. And I submit my regular every four issues per year and submit it on time. But mm -hmm. they're excellent as well. So mm -hmm. I think having a supportive publishing company, um, a wonderful editorial assistant with me in, in Brisbane, makes things flow flow mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Well, on behalf of the field, I thank you for your service oh, thank on that you. journal. <laughs> it's great. To, I yeah. mean, it's one of the top journals in our field. Oh, well, it's lovely to hear. We, um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what's your favourite part of editing a journal and what's your least favourite part? I think learning myself what's happening around the world, mm -hmm. increasing my own knowledge, that's a, a big a big plus. Having this the satisfaction of, of seeing of working what I try and do is work with, you know, revising papers and um, helping people where I can. Um, sometimes if a paper needs some work and I feel it, it, it could do with a bit of work before I send to reviews to increase their chances of getting oh, good reviews, yeah. I'll provide them with some feedback and generally the authors are, are happy to do that. And even, you know, and I hate rejecting papers, I just hate it because I know how much, with my own uh, journal writing, I know how much it it takes how much thought and time it takes to produce a paper, right. and so I and I say to that I you know I'm a, I do appreciate, but I hope the feedback is is helpful. Yeah. And you know it's it's very rewarding to me when I have authors come back to me, and often it'll be uh, who are just starting out, and they they thank me and they said that feedback I've learned a lot from that feedback that was really helpful, mm -hmm. and and even the pro several revisions through to the publication stage that's mm -hmm. rewarding mm -hmm. for me. 
So you mentioned when the journal started, there were fewer journals in our field. Now there are more. Where do you see mathematical thinking and learning fitting amongst all the other journals that are here now? Oh, that's a good question. I suppose we're competing. We don't have a strict word limit, mm-hmm. and I think that is a, a plus. Um, in because I know that a lot of well, most of the journals do have a word limit, which and I can understand why because you've got, for example, I've limited to 88 printed pages per issue or so much per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I do point out to some authors that look, your paper is overly long, um, readers are, are not going to want to plow through that length, so I think you could mm-hmm. cut back a bit here, yeah, or there. It's very hard, I know, just from a journal, editor, yeah, from a journal, you know, writing articles myself. So I think that, but also we do try and, although we accept a range of articles, we do try and focus on the mathematical thinking and the learning side, the mm-hmm. learning aspect, whether it's mm-hmm. from a teacher perspective or a student perspective. Mm-hmm. I also try to, like with some special issues, I've got one I'm planning, I try to keep abreast of some topical issues that I might be able to do special issues on. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it's, it's probably comparable to, well, as far as the the style of articles it receives is... Um, comparable to Jeremy um, and to ESM. It's different to ZDM because mm-hmm. it has like specialised right. issues. And and ZDM has a character count, like 60,000 characters, I think. Oh, so they get very precise on what precise, you're allowed that's to. that's right. That's right. And what you're allowed to. I think to. I, I submitted one there and I was maybe a few hundred characters over. Yeah. And I thought we had already cut it down so much. But they said, no, nope, mm. 60,000 characters, right. please. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing I hate about journals. And I think don't think I'm alone is the editorial manager systems. Mm. Every journal has a different one. And I'm sort of used to mine now. Um, I've got to be. I've been using it for for many, (laughs) many years. But um, even sometimes I'll make a mistake. But I know submitting my own articles to various different journals and you have your journal, the editors, Mm -hmm. it can take you a good hour Mm -hmm. to upload a paper Mm -hmm. and all of the figures and, and everything. And then... And they're all different. And mm-hmm. I can understand those who have difficulty in uploading a paper. And I say, oh, no, I have the same problems myself. So, <laughs> but that's oh, nothing to do with that. It's the publishers that right, have right. yes. But, um, yes, I don't know whether I've really answered your question, Sam, but I say it complements the other journals. We try and maintain a high standard mm-hmm. of work. We're pretty thorough with the editing and that. Yeah. I'm not that I'm saying the other journals aren't thorough. They're right. all very, you know, thorough. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and I think having the, you know, the thinking and learning, it doesn't exclude a lot, but you, if you try to keep the focus on students' mathematics, yeah, thinking right and learning, learning that's even if it's stuff. from a teacher's perspective, I mean, it, it yeah. definitely distinguishes it from, like, the Journal of Mathematics Teacher Education, for example. Oh, yeah, no, it's totally different yeah, to that. So yes, there is a little yes. bit of complementary. Conf- yes, different to that. And it's different for, in many ways to the new Springer Journal of um, STEM Education. I think it's called the International Journal. I've published a couple in there. They're very rigorous, too. It's an online journal with mm-hmm. Springer. But that cu- cuts right across the... Oh. I have had, for example, um, Engineering Education, Julie Gainsford has done some lovely article, a couple of... one or two articles, on, but, but it's really just the mathematics in contrast to some others, like Natalie Sinclair's very good journal article, a journal on digital technologies and, mm-hmm. and mathematics in with Springer and open um, we um, more we combine technology and mathematics but it's primarily mathematics thinking mm-hmm. yeah. sure so I'm um, going back to the work that you're doing on stem education yeah. so you've had a few grants in the past where you looked at stem issues in primary grades 
and that's leading to a current grant that you have also around STEM. But let me first go to those ones that you did in the past years. What was the driving motivation for you to get into STEM issues and for focusing on earlier grades rather than maybe like, you know, university STEM or high school STEM? Well, I felt that it's not much good starting in the secondary grades when so much of the foundational work occurs in the primary grades. For example, in statistics, in modelling with statistics, it's no use students going into the secondary school and learning all the formal uh, statistics from procedural um, point of view if they haven't had a foundational understanding in the primary grades. For example, posing and refining questions is very difficult and it's very important, not just in some of the data modelling with data, but in even just if you're doing a dissertation. Mm-hmm. You've got to, if you're doing a paper, you've got to have a, you know, we our students are learning, they, they, I like them to pose questions, which comes back to my problem posing, posing questions, mm-hmm. looking at, do they need refinement? Are your questions clear? Will you be able to gather the data that's going to address your research question? Mm-hmm. Okay, when you do, um, what data are you going to collect to what, you know, um, how are you going to use that data? What are you going to do with it? And there's a range of things that they can do um, in analysing it, like prioritising, weighting some data, whatever, and representing the data in a range of ways that they would like. And being able to not just go through mechanical steps, but at each step of looking at the question, looking at the data that's needed, perhaps going back, refining the question, then coming up with a, a model or some product or representation that you think answers your question, you say, no, I don't really think this data, I've got to either gather some more data or reanalyze or look back at my question. And when you present your product, however you represent it, whether it's in a table, whether it's in um, uh, different representations, you come to a conclusion and you realise that you draw a conclusion and you can draw inferences, like make some predictions, look at the variation and look at the certainty. Can we draw that conclusion with certainty? Mm-hmm. Not not really. There's a certain amount and the students, we want the students to appreciate just because they get a, an answer or a product or whatever, they can't say with 100% confidence mm-hmm. uh, level mm-hmm. that this is the mm-hmm. solution. And the students are appreciating that. And I found over the three years in the previous project, the students have come to know how to look at models and data critically. So they will say, how do you know that? Why do you think that is more important? Can you really draw that conclusion? Because you only had a limited amount of data. We don't mm-hmm. know what's happened mm-hmm. in other time periods mm-hmm. or whatever. So helping students become critical consumers mm-hmm and producers of data, mm-hmm. being able to analyze is, is particularly important. And they need a lot of experience in that. Yeah, it so, makes me think of too, that helping a student to understand, this is definitely the right prediction to make, but that yeah. doesn't mean that the prediction is definitely going to come true. That's right, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Even if you have a well-justified prediction based on data and interpretations and things, you still might have to say like, but there's still a fairly good chance that it might not happen. And you know, even year two, like seven-year-olds can look at data they've been working on and they can make some predictions based on the trends that they see in the data. And that's for six, seven-year-olds can Hmm. do that. And it's quite amazing. But you know, you get them young, you Mm -hmm. expose them to meaningful hands-on activities dealing with data. Yeah, they can proceed. So it sounds like one of the things that you have 
found through your work, which I think is very important, is just the capabilities of the children Absolutely. that they can do this. Are there some other main findings that you feel like have come out of those past projects that you've already completed about STEM education? That an awful lot more work is needed. Hmm. For example, we talk about the STEM and STEM acronym, and it's been the flavour for a few years now, and increasingly so, like in the in Australia and obviously in the US as well. But we still don't know what STEM we refer to. STEM, I say, is often referred to as just STEM. STEM is science, hmm. and. Um, it's not. It's, it's, it depends on how you interpret STEM. But I don't like, you know, I get concerned that maths can be left, even though they say, oh, yes, maths is important, science is important. But then when they talk about STEM, they just say science. Okay, science could, like we can say science does encompass mathematics. But mathematics is a discipline in its own right. And it needs recognition. And, and particularly in your integrative or interdisciplinary projects, it's very important. And engineering is, gets left out. I mean, engineering education is particularly important, but they don't want to know about it. And the E, as I said in my talk today, the E is just seems to be there to keep the acronym nice. And <laughs> technology, well, that's gaining increased attention, but I think we need to give equitable attention to the respective disciplines. And with the current focus and debate, I suppose, on integrative approaches, um, interdisciplinary approaches, we need to keep the respective disciplines in mind and not just let one overtake another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in my experience or in observation, a lot of times science is the driving force. Yes. And then you can see the technology there and you can maybe see some connections to engineering and mathematics, but it still seemed clearly that science was the one driving. It's in the driver's seat. That's right. Yes, yes. And because we, everybody, you know, like our government will talk about um, you know, the importance of science and we have a STEM innovation in a science and innovation agenda. I just feel that we need to not just equate STEM with science. Mm-hmm. So you have a current project now that's been funded in Australia and it's about the modeling that you talked about before and yeah. having primary grade students um, modeling. So what are the overall goals of that project and let us know where well, you are kind of in Yes, that well, we're only sort of um, into our sort of fourth uh, activity um, we want the students we want to continue from well the, this is a new lot of students um, but going from it's a four year going from year three through to year six we want them to be exposed to statistical investigations mm-hmm. but bringing in the other aspects of engineering aspects of technology some science and mathematics as well what we've um, looked at so far we're finding the students uh, well after the first year they are um, competent at doing representations, they can see trends, they can see variation, I mean variation underlies statistics, mm-hmm. they can see variation. For example, one activity we did early last year was we looked at um, um, making manufacturing lic- licorice and we looked at what goes in, you know, the quality control, the engineering aspects of manufacturing lic- lic- licorice and then we wanted them to um, they then brought in as our statistics, they made licorice, um, they had a number of constraints mm-hmm. by hand and did some measuring and so on, recording of the data. Mm-hmm. And then the, then they we had these those extruders or whatever, the little play dough things, and they put the they made the the licorice with 
um, these extruders which were more succinct and more accurate mm -hmm. and they recorded the data and so on and they had to um, compare the data, look at the variation in the handmade versus the variation in the manufactured ones mm -hmm. and they represented that and they looked in however they wanted, they could see the greater variation in the handmade ones to the manufactured ones and that led us back to also thinking about in manufacturing how uh, consistent, how little, is there a lot still variation in manufactured products and we discussed that mm. and we looked at, well, there, there is some but, mm -hmm. um, and then we, we asked, we, we were discussing about, um, you know, if you had the choice of would you rather the manufacture the um, manufactured goods or the handmade goods? And we were looking mm -hmm. at it. It was ideal because the next day um, or the following week was the the school fete or the school fair, and they were looking at you know homemade things. And mm -hmm. and some students and we were hoping. Well, s some students did say yes. Well, you have more uniform. You don't have as much variation with the manufactured ones. But then some students said. I'd far rather manufactured ones because you don't know how dirty um, people's hands might be if they make them, you know, by hand and with the germs and so on. And so they were mm -hmm. more concerned about the, um, uh, you know, cleanliness and so on. But a mm -hmm. lot of them, they, they appreciated and they could see why the manufactured products were important and we looked at quality control and so on. So that was bringing mm -hmm. in just informal engineering, the statistics variation representations mm -hmm. and also some of the technology as well. Right. So, so those students then, the project is going to be with them? them for, the yes, four students. years, yes, same students. And we've got them this year. And, and the teacher, um, those are wonderful, it was only probably a small class we worked at and, and we've got students in Tasmania, and, um, which is the island at the bottom of mm -hmm. Australia, and they're doing a number of classes. We're seeing already, in, in you know, the improvement in the grade three teacher said, she said, I can't believe what these students have come up with hmm. and was it a probability activity as well but you know they, they were just really amazed and then we moved into the um, second year and once again they've they're doing really well we've been po we've been focusing a fair bit on posing and refining questions and looking at the data you're going to collect to answer and that's really difficult as mm -hmm. I said before and that's mm -hmm. very important mm -hmm. and who's teaching is this the project with in partnership with teachers yes or? the teachers the teachers teacher okay. we we working with the teachers we develop quite detailed teaching notes so we provide background information for the okay. teachers we have some videos and then we um we have a little student booklet so they can record all their um, representations okay. and their responses because we use that as part of our data as well okay. as well as we record their group discussions mm -hmm. but the teacher implements it we are always in the classroom when the kids mm -hmm. are working and to observe them so it's a teacher and we the most important well very important thing is to fit in with the curriculum because we mm -hmm. don't want to see these activities being add-on right. so we look at what topic areas they're covering in maths science technology and of course the engineering is part of the our design and technology curriculum okay yeah i imagine that's important and i'm the last thing i want to ask you about that is the outcomes so one big thing in the united states is if we were doing an initiative to try to increase the modeling and the problem posing and you know that kind of uh, thinking processes in the United States, a lot of the pressure would be that those need to show up on the evidence formalized evidence state based. tests. Yep, yep. Um, but I'm wondering, in your case, are, are you looking at outcomes over these four years for the students 
kind of formalized, you know, standardized test score outcomes, or are you looking at other types of outcomes, like their own problem solving or their problem posing? Um, probably, well, more the, the latter part. Um, we do, surprisingly, the and not that you can claim causation, but the classes that we've worked at over the several years, the schools, they, we have a national testing program, three, five, and seven, and nine. The students, their, their scores have really improved. Not uh, We can't say that we're responsible for that, mm-hmm, but, but it's least... interesting at the schools how their scores have mm-hmm. improved. We do, um, the, the assessment is important, we'll often we'll do an assessment the end or uh, before and, and the end, and the teachers will develop a special assessment which the teachers will use in their formal reporting as well. Mm-hmm. So we don't rely on, we're not interested in, in how students go in, in formal national assessments because they miss out on a lot because sometimes mm-hmm. a child can do not terribly well on that but excel on some of our activities. Right. But we always we try and build in the assessment so the teacher can um, use that uh, to mm-hmm. report on that and what the students have achieved. And, and a few of the teachers have show, showed us the, the tools they use so we try and fit in with those mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And anything about the affective side, like about their attitudes towards STEM or how they we, see science and math? Yes, we in the previous program on engineering education, we did explore the students' conceptions of of any, you know, engineering and STEM mm-hmm. and so on, and look at them after, and there was certainly improvement. They they knew what mm-hmm. they loved their engineering activities, and um, they knew what mm-hmm. they involved. But certainly, you can just see by the students. Like for example, when we finished one project middle of last year, and the students said, "No more engineering, no more." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, you know," and because it all depends on funding, of course. And they yeah. said, "No more." And then, and the teachers are reusing the program, so mm-hmm. they. Um, They've been using all of our programs, which is great. So it means mm-hmm. that it's not just a one-off thing. They are They're, implement- yeah. because they can see what the students can achieve yeah. on it. But right. So the teachers of their own volition are continuing it with yes, the next. Yes, yes, which is which is good because we can't make them, of course, right. but they can see the value of it. Like the mm-hmm. teacher last year with the um, has got a couple of class now has got we did the licorice. She borrowed the equipment and that because she was doing it again with her class mm-hmm. this year. She was really pleased with what the kids have done. So. That's very rewarding for us. My guest is Lynn English, who is a Career Research Medal awardee from the Mathematics Education Research Group of Australasia. And I just have one more question for you, Lynn. It's just a kind of fun question that I ask all of my guests. So we've been talking about your career in math education, but I wonder what you might imagine yourself doing if you weren't in mathematics education. Well, I always wanted to be an architect or an engineer, but... Um, in my days, um, given my age, the um, architecture had to be pretty good at drawing and that, and I wasn't very good at art, so they gave that. But I always wanted to be an architect, and I would have loved to have been an engineer as well. But mm-hmm. um, in those days, women just don't, you weren't encouraged to go into engineering, but architecture engineering is. Yeah, so there's yeah. some famous architecture in Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a particular one I have in mind that yeah, probably yeah. is in a lot of photographs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so. Thank you so much for taking the time during your visit here to sit down with us and speak to us about your career. My pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much. And certainly I've been enjoying my time in the US. Everybody's been so friendly and so welcoming and, and I'm learning a lot as well. So my pleasure to give you the time.